Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Speaking of protests, the General Services Administration got out from under one protest of a major acquisition initiative, only to be sucked right back into a protest of another big program. Thus, the always entertaining world of federal procurement, a step forward, a step back. In his reporter's notebook, Federal News Network's Jason Miller writes about the latest trials and tribulations, another installment of As the GSA's Acquisition World Turns. Jason joins me now with the latest. And Jason, let's start with what they got out from under in terms of protests. This is the Oasis Plus protest they got out from under. Uh, Boston Consulting Group filed this back in August. GAO decided shortly after Thanksgiving denying BCG's complaints. And this was time a pre-award protest. I want to be clear on that. GSA continues to evaluate proposals under Oasis Plus, but this was a pre-award protest. What BCG basically protested was several valuation factors in the solicitation, including the requirement for offers to disclose their breakdowns of their proposed labor rates. This is to ensure, according to GSA, price reasonableness for the services any one company is offering. BCG said this violated the FAR and the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act, or FASA, and especially when we talk about commercial items. GAO denied the protest, saying the agency reasonably determined that assessing the individual cost drivers associated with each offer's unique labor rates was acceptable for making a reliable and accurate cost price reasonable determination. Now, GAO also found that the solicitation is consistent with FASA as its stated preference of the acquisition of commercial items. It said GSA took the right action, or at least action, to accommodate commercial item contracting, encouraged participation, and pointed out that no other vendor protested, and BCG actually did bid on Oasis Plus in the end. So they kind of shot themselves in the foot, if you will. And this was an important decision by GAO, I think I had heard from a lot of procurement experts that they were watching this because if GAO had found for BCG, right, that would have really thrown a big ratchet into a lot of what agencies doing around commercial items, not just GSA, but across the government. So in, in many ways, this was a, a it would call it a landmark win, but a big win for GSA. All right. And then there is the new protest now that popped up in its face there like zombies. One step forward with Oasis Plus, one step back with something called the Commercial Platforms Initiatives, or CPAI. This protest comes from EPS, National Diversity Veteran Small Business, over their disqualification from competition for this next generation of the Commercial Platforms Initiative. Tom, just to go back real quick, about five, six years ago, GSA awarded three contracts to Amazon for Fisher Scientific and Overstock to test out this concept that Congress really pushed them into. So they're into phase two. They've been looking at uh, the solicitations and bids over the last uh, couple months. And uh, EPS NDVSB was disqualified. And I talked with David Ciroli, the CEO of the company, and he says GSA's decision to disqualify EPS NDVSB is perplexing. He says GSA disqualified them around three deficiencies. They submitted a bid. They went through a live demonstration. They went back and forth over email questions and still couldn't come to resolve these three deficiencies. They say GSA told them they didn't provide the ability to have a minimum order quantity. They didn't demonstrate a data dashboard and didn't have a marketplace unique for government use. Now, all three of those, Ciroli says, is untrue because they are actually providing those exact services and their e-procurement platform to the Army, the Air Force, and two Navy commands, and they say they meet and exceed those solicitation requirements. They filed a protest back in December 21st. GAO has until April 1st to decide. So I think there's something, obviously, we'll be watching over the next uh, couple months. And this commercial platforms initiative has attracted other protests before, hasn't it? It did. Earlier this uh, summer, the GSA had to take corrective action after the National Institutes for the Blind filed a pre-solicitation protest 
over the mandatory and sourcing requirements for products provided under the Ability One program. Basically, GSA did not keep uh, that mandatory sourcing requirements in the solicitation or did not spell it out correctly enough. And I think uh, National Institute for Blind was quite worried that these companies, whether it's Amazon or Fisher Scientific or Overstock or any of the new winners, would not follow the rules under the Ability One program. So I think that that first protest, now the second protest by EPS and DVSB, and for other reasons, now the awards under the platform for the you know, next generation platform are delayed. They're going to take longer than expected. GSA had hoped to make the award of the second version of these platforms, I think, before the end of 2023 in the calendar year, but instead now had to extend their current contracts, again, Amazon, Fisher Scientific, and Overstock, through March. And, and Tom, this is interesting because GAO found earlier this year in July that agencies spent about $40 million through the Commercial Platforms Initiative in 2022. It's definitely gaining popularity. More agencies are using the platforms. And I think there's more interest in providing this type of service to the government. I've heard, again, along with EPS and DVSB, uh, Granger, Amazon, a company called BIT, and possibly, again, we'll stress possibly here, Costco and Walmart may have all bid on this uh, procurement. So it'd be interesting to see how many bidders they did receive and obviously who gets awards uh, later this year. Yeah, if they need Swiffers to clean those floors when people come back, they'll have a place to get them. And there's no protest yet on the Ascend blanket purchase requirement for cloud services, but... You think that could be happening, and this is just out in December. Right. This is a pre-solicitation or a draft performance statement of work specifically around what they call Pool 1. And Pool 1 is for infrastructure and platform as a service. They also offer some details for Pools 2 and 3, Pool 2 around software as a service, and Pool 3 around cloud IT professional services. Tom, Ascend has been two years, almost two years in the making. GSA released this. If you remember Sonny Hashmi, the former FAS commissioner, who, by the way, has a new job now at a company called Uncork. Yes, indeed. He, he talked to us about this back at ELC in May of 2022. So it's been in process for quite a while. And a lot of agencies, a lot, a lot of vendors are very excited about this because it's an easier way to buy cloud services. So will it be protested? Who and I, you know, Tom, you and I don't know, but there's a lot of excitement around it, which is why I'm bringing this up because I've talked to some in industry already who say, okay, yeah, do we really need another BPA? And, and Sonny Hashmi during his time at GSA was very clear to say, we're not doing this just to do it. We have to make sure there's a need. At the same time, will vendors bid on this? Because under a BPA, Tom, rules are that you have to show a need for why to establish a BPA on top of the schedules. The draft performance work statement so far does not show any agencies who are saying committing to using this BPA. And in fact, what I've talked to uh, industry in the, over, over the course of the last couple of weeks, they've told me this follows a track record of GSA not following the FAR rules to ensure that there is a guarantee or at least a interest of, based on agencies' use of the BPAs. And we've seen other, what someone termed BPA flops over the years. The one big one that I remember is the email as a service BPA flop. I'm sure there's been plenty of others that folks can, can think about. So again, something to watch, maybe or protestable, maybe not, but uh, Ascend, a very popular contract. And again, Tom, this is why it's a soap opera. We keep learning more. We, there's always plenty of news to report. All right. Well, those billions have to find somewhere to go. So maybe come into the first pool. The water's great. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always my pleasure. And check out his notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and in the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing 
what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time. So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. 
your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer. And I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. 
And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.